pretty powerful little video, wasn't it? Today I want to continue our series entitled Breaking Out. And I want to talk to you today about temptation, specifically as it relates to sexual temptation primarily. But temptation is the hub from which a vast plethora of spokes emanate that result in a lot of compromise in our lives. So if we can deal with the core issue of temptation and how to conquer it, it really doesn't matter in what way we're being tempted. It all ends up being the same, temptation and how do we conquer it. So I want to share with you some thoughts about this, and I, I really believe that this is one of the most prominent things Christians deal with. And if you can get a hold of this today, it will empower you to overcome temptation. Now, first let's talk about where does temptation come from. I think temptation basically comes from three areas. Temptation comes, first of all, from Satan. One of the names of Satan is the tempter. He tempts us. That's what he does. He tempted Jesus. And I've heard some people say, I want to get so spiritually mature and powerful that I'll never be tempted by the devil anymore. That's never going to happen. You will never become so spiritual that you're beyond temptation. If Satan was unintimidated to tempt Christ, he's certainly going to be unintimidated to tempt us. All right? So our temptations come from Satan, the tempter. He's also called the deceiver. Now, deception can be a kind of temptation. We're tempted to believe the wrong thing or to accept partial truth or to believe a lie. It is a temptation to believe something that you've always been taught is wrong and suddenly to change that paradigm and to accept that as truth. People are tempted in this way. Uh, we can be tempted to do something that, that we deep down inside know is wrong. We know it's a lie. Just like the young man that Pastor Josh was referring to in his earlier remarks who, who attempted suicide. He knew that was wrong. And somehow the devil came to him and tempted him and talked him into trying. Let's just do a survey. Let's be honest. I'll raise my hand first. How many of us have been tempted to do something we know absolutely from Jump Street was wrong? Raise your hand. See? 100%. In fact, most of the time when we're tempted, we know from the get-go that it's wrong. You ever notice how you never feel tempted to eat broccoli? I've never been tempted. Oh, I, just, I just want broccoli so bad. Brussels sprouts, I've got to have them, you know. Why is it always you're tempted with cheesecake and a hand-dipped, swirled chocolate milkshake made with thick, creamy ice cream and chocolate syrup and some praline pecan and some whipped cream on top. I just lost all of you. I go to Cracker Barrel. I'm not really tempted with the collard greens. I'm tempted with that biscuit and butter, honey, jelly, pecan pancakes with two syrups on top, chicken fried chicken with gravy. I got to shut up. Somebody say an amen and drooling, you know. I used to say all the time, the devil's not going to tempt you with a potted meat milkshake. If you don't know what potted meat is, it's not. How many of you know what potted meat is? I mean, if you like it, more power to you. To me, it's just like, ugh. It's kind of like a spam milkshake. Same thing, you know. You put spam in the ice cream, zzz, mm, that's going to be yummy. No, it's not. It's going to be nasty. The devil doesn't tempt us with spam milkshakes. 
He tempt us, tempts us with things that we really desire. So the devil is good at tempting. He's good at being a bad devil. All right? Now, the second place temptation comes from is people. People. It's dangerous anymore to walk into some public places. Many years ago, I went on a cruise. And before we got on the boat, we found ourselves in San Juan, Puerto Rico, where we were preparing to board the cruise. And we had a little time to kill, so we decided to go to this gigantic mall in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So we went to the mall. And I, I, I just, I mean, I've been a lot of places. I've never in my life seen as much skin exposed in a public place as I did that mall. I mean, these, these little teenage girls just wore as little as possible and to not get arrested. I was thankful that my teenage son wasn't with me. I would have probably had to chain him up somewhere, you know. Just <laughs> What is it with us? What is it with some of these starlets and people that we, we want so badly to get attention? We want so badly to, to be desirable that we will dress in such provocative ways to elicit, basically, attention in any way we can get it. Let me encourage all you young ladies in here, and you know, for that matter, guys too, be, give a little Christian forethought to what you wear before you just bebop out in public. You know, look at yourself honestly in the mirror and uh, just ask yourself, is, is this modest? You know, is this modest? Is, it, it, the first question shouldn't be, does this make me look hot? The first question ought to be, does this look like something a Christian person would wear? So without judging anybody or throwing any darts in anybody's direction, which I'm certainly not, just let me encourage you to, to think about your, uh, your clothing and your appearance and when, you're, when you're out as part of your witness, because whether you intend for it to be or not, it is. And can I just tell you this in personal experience? When you're sitting someplace, ladies especially, when you're sitting someplace in public and you got on, let me put it this way, I've seen some young ladies sitting in public places with skirts on that when you sit down, they're almost obscene. And then you sit in such a way, and I'll just phrase it like this, it's not very ladylike. Okay, you're not helping any male who walks by at all to have a clean thought life. You know, one, one pastor in a car full of pastors, they're driving down the road, and this beautiful girl just obviously worked out all the time, had a great figure, she's walking down the street. And one of the pastors said, look, look at that beautiful girl. And all the pastors looked, no, 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 you know. And the one, one pastor asked the other one, said, Pastor, it, it, we all just saw that beautiful woman. It, it, did we sin? Is that a sin? And the wise old pastor said, nope. God made your eyes to see. You look, you saw a beautiful woman. That's not a sin. But if the driver circles the block, now we've got a problem. And I will tell you this too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna skate. You can't skate on carpet, so this is my pretend skating. I'm skating. Okay. For ladies, for for women, most of the time it's not such a physical 
visual thing that attracts them to men. Many times it's more of a romantic thing, an emotional thing, an, an imaginary thing. And I'm just going to tell you that while people might not physically be in front of you tempting you, if you put yourself in the wrong situation and by reading the wrong material, <coughs> romance novels and such stuff as that, and certain magazine articles and certain TV shows, you can find your mind, forget your eyes, your mind, ladies, going in places it ought not to be going. It's all up here anyway, whether it comes in here through a visual stimulation of a person or something that you ingest through reading or assimilating uh, through a movie or whatever. Fantasy can be just as ungodly as lust. Where else does temptation come from? Temptation comes from our own selves, our desires. If I had two plates up here, today, and you were not to govern yourself. I'm not talking to you people that are staunch disciplinarians. I'm just talking to your base, carnal, fleshly desires. And in one plate, I had steamed broccoli. And in the other plate, I had homemade, fresh chilled banana pudding. How many of you, how many of you, just be honest, how many of you, if you just had no care in the world, you knew Jesus was coming in an hour. How many of you would eat the banana pudding? How many of you would eat the broccoli? Okay, there are a few of you diehards that I guess you just hate bananas. I'm going to stick my face in the banana pudding bowl. If I know Jesus is coming in an hour, I'm diving in, baby. All in the BP, the banana pudding. Here's how the Bible puts it. James chapter 1 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. Please stop saying that when you're tempted and you fall away and you commit adultery on your wife, it ends up in divorce and catastrophic relationship damage and family separation and hurt and pain and devastation. Please stop saying after it's all over, well, it all worked out for the best. It was all God's will anyhow. <clears throat> Wrong answer. Johnny, tell him about the consolation prize. I get so tired of hearing people say, whatever happens in their life, well, it all worked out. It was just part of God's plan. No, it was not. The closest I've ever come to storming a pulpit and gagging a preacher with my sock and taking over was in New Mexico. And I really did almost walk up to the pulpit. I had to constrain myself not to do it. If we'd been in a public venue, I would have. But since we were in his church, I refrained. Man had committed suicide. The pastor walks up. The first thing that he says is, you know, sometimes we wonder why God allows things like this. God didn't allow that. Jesus died and this guy walked over the blood of the fallen Savior in order to do something the Bible specifically forbids us to do. God didn't allow it. He did it against everything that God provided for him. God doesn't allow us to be tempted for our improvement. God doesn't allow us to be tempted 
to test whether or not we're going to fall on our face. Now, God will test us, but not with temptation that will lead to our destruction. God tests us with disciplinary things that strengthen us, not destroy us. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. It didn't say Jesus, the Son of God. It said God the Father. I got in a big theological deal one day because I used this verse and a guy just went off on me after service. Look, don't ever go off on your pastor, especially this one. I'm too old. He just went off on me. Jesus was never tempted. I said, brother, you're wrong. Nowadays, I'm going to say, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. But back then, I still had a degree of uh, tact. I said, brother, that's not what the Bible says. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You read it yourself. God cannot be tempted by evil. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, one God. Therefore, Jesus was never tempted. I said, what about that verse in the Bible that says he was tempted in every way just like we were? That was old me, new me. <laughs> no. No, I'm joking. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after, and this is the part that nobody seems to read. We read that part and we stop. Then it goes, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. When's the last time you turned on Christian television and heard somebody preach on that? I'm not casting aspersions. We just need to be sure we're getting the whole diet of the Word of God. You go to a place where people are cherry-picking just the encouraging stuff, it's like eating dessert all the time. Boy, it tastes good, but it'll kill you. You've got to get the meat and the vegetables, too. So, now that we know where temptation comes from, Satan, other people, and our own desires, then let's move on to how do we conquer it? How do we overcome it? How do we, how do we prevail and overcome temptation in our lives? This is hugely important for you to understand because I can assure you you're going to be tempted. Um, I saw a survey the other day, and I can't attest to the veracity or the accuracy or the validity of this survey. But if it's true, there are some guys in America that really have some problems. I saw a survey the other day, and they had interviewed some guys and some psychologists that had done some work. and They decided that an average American man has a sexual fantasy every nine seconds. How can you ever change a tire? How can you bathe? You can't brush your teeth. That's crazy. Look, I'm a, I'm a red-blooded American man, and I've got all the hormones that go with that. I mean, every nine seconds? Come on, when I was 18, it wasn't that bad. I don't know where they get their results, but the point of the matter is that sooner or later, we're all going to be tempted to do something. You're going to be tempted to steal something. You're going to be tempted to know in your heart that the cashier gave you change for a hundred and you only gave her a fifty. We justify it by saying, well, they make enough money in this store. 
Well, I've been shopping here for 20 years. I've paid my dues. You know what I saw? I saw a video of a tennis match. This was amazing. And the two guys were playing tennis. And one guy who was serving, he hit a serve. And the referee said, out! They can't just say, that was out. They go, out! You know, I don't know why they have to do it. Out! So he called it out. And the, the guy on the other side who was receiving the serve said, no, no, that was in. Of course, everybody on the tennis court goes, oh! Honesty. We've never seen such sportsmanship. Oh, my God, character. The referee said, do you really want to contest it? He said, it was in. You called it out. Of course, the guy on the other side who served is just going, didn't know what to do. So they replayed the thing, and sure enough, it was in. So they gave him the point, and the audience went crazy. Ah! I'm thinking, how many of you tearheads would have done that? You'd have just said, oh, yeah, I got away with that one. Come on. I was at the store the other day, and the opposite happened. I won't tell you what store, but I gave the cashier some money, and she shorted me $20. Look, don't ever just ball the money up and stick it in your pocket, because once you leave the store and take it out of your pocket, then they got an argument. Always count it right there. I fanned it and countered it, and I said, you, she's, and before I could say anything, she said, oh, I'm so sorry, and grabbed 20 and gave it to me. And she was looking around. I'm so sorry. That was an accident. I didn't mean to do that. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to judge you, but it sure does smell fishy right now. <laughs> Number one, how do we overcome temptation? We always know. Now, I want you to get this. Always know that when it comes to temptation, you're not fighting for victory. You're fighting with victory. There is a verse in the Bible. Now listen, this is grown-up medicine. How many of you are old enough to have lived back when quinine or quinine was legal to take? Any of y'all remember that? I'm telling you, you could, I think you could drink battery acid that might taste better than quinine. That's the nastiest stuff I have ever put in my mouth. Just horrible. I'd rather go chew up raw Carolina Reapers than take quinine. Bitter, awful, nasty. In a sense, that's what this verse is because it carries with it two things. It's a double-barrel verse. Number one, incredible promise of amazing victory and potential overcoming might for every one of us all the time. Secondly, grave, adult, grown-up responsibility to walk in that. And the verse is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the 13th verse. It reads like this in the NIV. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out or a way of escape so that you can endure it or stand up under it, depending on which NIV version you prefer. By the way, I've warned you about the Message Bible. And the guy who progenated the Message Bible has recently made some statements that uh, support my warning to you about that Bible. A lot of versions out there are okay, but I warn you about the Message Bible. Be careful with that. So, this tells us no temptation has overtaken us except what's common to man. You, you think, oh, the, nobody's ever been tempted like this before. Yes, somebody has. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. There's no brand new thing. There's no nouveau temptationos. 
It's already been before. Secondly, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Thirdly, when you are tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Sometimes the way out is the super magic power word, no. I understand the video. We can't just go through life saying no, but I'm going to tell you there's sometimes you just got to say no. That's not all you need to say every time, but, but no is still a good word. Let's don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Learn how to say no, all right? Secondly, how do we overcome? Let's take a look at King David's advice. Now, King David knew something about this because of his dalliance with the woman Bathsheba. You remember the story? How many of you know the story of David and Bathsheba? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. I want to know. Do you know it? Raise your hand. Almost everybody. In case you don't, here's the story. The, the, kings, uh, the, kings, the king's army went to war one spring, and instead of David going with the soldiers, sleeping in tents, camping out, David decided, boy, I like this palace. My, ma- my new uh, Tempur-Pedic mattress sure is soft. I'm going to stay here. I like the air conditioner. I like my fresh juicer. I'm going to stay here. One night he goes out in the, in the moonlight and, and, and walks around on the roof of the palace overlooking his kingdom, looks down, and, and there's a beautiful woman named Bathsheba who's bathing in the moonlight. And he sees her there bathing, and he decides, you know what, uh, that's, that's a Krispy Kreme donut I just got to have right there, you know. She's hot now. So he sends her, brings her to the house, pours him a glass of cold milk, and enjoys the Krispy Kreme donut, all right? She gets pregnant. She gets pregnant. Her husband, Uriah, is one of David's mighty men. He's off to war. David says, I got to cover this up, so I'm going to bring Uriah home. Maybe he'll go in, and, and he'll, he, he and Bathsheba will get together, if you know what I mean, and then it won't, nobody will really know whose the baby, baby belongs to. So he brings Uriah home, and and says, hey, go, go be with your wife. And Uriah has this strange condition called integrity. And he, he says, you know what? I just can't go in there to my beautiful wife, Bathsheba. But you've got to ask yourself a question here. King David has hundreds of wives and concubines and porcupines and whatever else. <laughs> He's got all these women from all over the world. Snap your finger. They show up dressed in sheer, you know. Bathsheba must have been something else. You know what I'm saying? King's got any woman he wants. It's like, forget all y'all. I want that one, you know. She must have been something special. So Uriah comes home, and instead of going in with his super fine uh, trophy wife, he decides, no, no. I know what's in my house, but I'm not going to go in there. I'm going to make my bed right here on the front doorstep because all my compatriots are out in the field. No, Notice how this must have tinged David. All my fellow soldiers are out in the field. <clears throat> well, you're in the palace, unsaid, but nevertheless. So rather than go in my humble abode and be with my one wife while you're here with hundreds of porcupines, I'm going to sleep on the doorstep. Because I just, it's just more than I can bear to think about going in there and enjoying the pleasures of my lady. I just can't do that, knowing that all my friends are sleeping in tents and risking their lives. So he slept on the front porch. Well, David said, all right, fine, I'll get you drunk. So the next day, David brings him over to the palace and starts pouring up the wine, and they get drunk. This time, 
Uriah stumbles back to the house and he goes, You know, I got a beautiful wife in there and she's a hot one, but I, my buddy's right there in them tents. I can't, now I'm going to sleep. And he sleeps on the front porch again. So David thinks, well, my plan didn't work. So he writes a letter, seals it, sends it back to the front with Uriah, carrying his own death warrant. Uriah rides back to the front, hands it to Joab, the army commander. Joab opens it. I'm, I'm sure it says, don't let Uriah read this. But pick a place where the fighting is fierce and place Uriah there and have the troops draw back from him so that he will be struck down and killed. Joab rolls it up, puts it in his cloak, says, Thank you, Uriah. And the next time there's a battle, he does exactly that. Uriah is struck by archers from the wall of the city they're, they're fighting against, and he dies. And that one sin followed King David his entire life and is even recorded in the New Testament. And there was judgment for that. Now, this is the thing nobody wants to talk about anymore in America. There's a cost for sin. This right here, what I'm about to say right now, is why we don't have a church of 5,000 people. You can't live like hell and expect the blessings of God from heaven. You can't walk in sin and expect God to be pleased and to bless you. You can't live in compromise and walk in power. There is a cost for sin every single time. David paid two prices for this. The prophet Nathan came to him and said, there was a king, and you know the story, but he said, the Lord says to you that the son born to you will die, and the baby did die. And the second thing Nathan said was, the sword of violence will never leave your house. And it never did, not even the David's grandchildren who divided the kingdom. I tried to tell a group of men that one time, and they were like, no, he was king when he died. I, said, I, didn't, I didn't say that. I said, anyway. David's advice can be found in the book of Psalms. Psalm 101, verse 3. He writes this. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. Not V-I-A-L. V-I-L-E. Vile. I hate what faithless people do. I will have no part in it. Wow. So David's advice, another way to put it is, I will set no evil thing before my eyes. Guys, let's just deal with it. It's impossible for you to watch pornography and not sin. Can't do it. You can have yourself convinced you can do it, but you can't. Ladies, you know, almost as many ladies use porn now as men do. Ladies, you can't do that and not sin. It is a sin. Let me say again, using, looking at pornography is a sin. And if you have done that in the past recent history of your life and you have not repented for it, you need to do so today. How about Job's counsel? The Bible says that Job was a perfect man, upright in everything he did. Outside Jesus, he's the only person the Bible calls perfect. Here's what Job's advice was. You can find it in the book he wrote. I have made a covenant with my eyes. That's what Job did. He made a covenant with his eyes. Let me say something here. I just feel strongly impressed to say this. You and Jesus don't have a special deal worked out for your pet sin. 
You obviously didn't hear that. Take two. You and Jesus do not have a special deal worked out for your pet sin. Thank you. I don't really need the amen. I just need to know that you understand and agree with what I'm saying. A lot of people feel like because of their particular set of circumstances, God gives a special understanding to their particular need for this particular sin. (coughs) Wrong answer. Okay? So, we've got David's advice, put no evil thing before me. Job's advice, make a covenant with my eyes. That happens up here. And thirdly, here's the real secret, and you can find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. This is the real secret to overcoming temptation, in my opinion. The first real secret is to know that God's already given you the power to overcome every temptation every time. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is the second one. This is the real secret. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And, here it is, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is the secret to conquering temptation. To take captive your thought life and to make it obedient to Christ. Because every evil thing in the world begins with a thought. Similarly, every beautiful thing in the world begins with a thought. Our thought lives determine where we go. And Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks within himself, so he is. They determine who we become. So if we can conquer our thought life and control it and bring it under the lordship of Christ, then we can conquer temptation, every temptation, every time. Maybe this is the way of escape referred to in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that we take captive every thought. You know why nobody's excited about spam milkshakes? Because nobody wants it. Now stop right there. And I know what I'm getting ready to say is like encouraging all of you that you can squat a thousand pounds tomorrow. But this is necessarily in and of itself nucleically accurate. If we stopped desiring sinful things, they might not be such a temptation to us. I never find myself struggling to resist going and buying a can of Spam and spinning it up in a blender full of ice cream. I don't fight that temptation on a day-to-day basis because I don't want it. What does the Bible say about our desires? It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That can mean two things. That means He can give you whatever your heart's desiring, or He can give you the desires themselves. And if our delight is in the Lord, what are we going to desire? We're going to desire things that please God. When I was a little boy, and you know my father died in 2012. When I was a little boy, my dad was larger than life to me. He was my hero. I mean, I've told you this a million times. I don't want to rehash all of how, how I love my dad. But the big thing in my hometown, you know, my town was so small, the cockroaches were humpbacked. The... Uh, You'll get that sometime later this afternoon. My town was so small, they had welcome on both sides of the sign, okay? Um, in my hometown, one of the big things to do is get in your car and go ride around this thing called the Bantam Chef. And the Bantam Chef was a little burger joint. So that was a big thing, get in your car and circle the Bantam Chef. Or go to Main Street, 
King Street and just ride up one side of Main Street, turn around and ride down the other side of Main Street. That was the big thing to do. I mean, you know, honestly, to me, I just didn't see the thrill. I just didn't get it. I decided that all my friends, you know what I decided, young, that, that all my friends my age were probably no smarter than me. I wasn't arrogant. It was just the truth. I saw them do boneheaded things at school, the same boneheaded things I did, and I thought, well, you're no smarter than I am. Who's smarter? Who, who can I learn from? And I thought, ah, oh, my dad, yeah, he's old and he's not cool and he wears a key ring on his belt and wears a uniform to work every day and he's greasy, but you know what? He's smart. And so I made best friends with my dad. And I, in my heart and my mind, I thought to all my little buddies at school, hey, y'all can go do what you want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang with my father. So he taught me how to hunt. He taught me how to fish. He taught me survival skills and bushcraft. He didn't know it was called bushcraft at the time, but it was. He taught me how to navigate in the woods. He taught me how to, how to properly treat a lady. He taught me what being a man was. He taught me what being a boy was, and he taught me the difference. And he taught me all about the Word of God and all about a whole bunch of things that have to do with life. And if I had just hung around my brain-dead buddies, I'd have never learned any of that stuff. I thank God for my father. And I thank God for what he taught me. I also thank God for every time he snatched me up and beat the tar out of me because I deserved every one. You can say, man, it's not going to hurt my feelings. I deserved it. <laughs> Some of you are probably thinking, you sure did, you little devil. No. I want to give you some thoughts to think about, then we're going to come pray. Five thoughts to think about. What else would you do with thoughts? <laughs> Remember, temptation seems flirty and sexy and daring and exciting. And it does. It does. It seems adventurous. It seems titillating. It seems so, oh, tingly, spidey tingle, you know. It's just, oh, man, you know, like forbidden fruit. Think about that, man. Adam and Eve could have eaten anything in the garden. All these trees, all this fruit. They didn't even have to cultivate it. They didn't have to plant it. It just grew and produced on a sunlit morning, the glistening drops of dew reflecting off the fresh, ripe peach. They could have all that. And instead, God says, the only tree I don't want you to eat off of is this tree right here. Well, they go straight for that one. What is it about us? The thing we're not supposed to have, that's the thing we want. I'll tell you what there is. That's, that's the spirit of rebellion and witchcraft and sorcery and self-will. It's the nature of humanity to want what we can't have. You go in the nursery right now, and you put a box in the corner. You say, okay, kids, you can play with anything in the nursery, but don't you mess with this box and leave. Yeah, let's put a hidden camera in there and see how that works. Like a magnet. Temptation seems flirty and sexy and daring and exciting, but it leads to sin, and sin can cost us eternity. I don't want you to forget. Now listen to this, because I'm not going to probably say anything more powerful than this today. This temptation thing is serious business, because temptation is the doorway to sin, and sin will send us to hell. There is a hell. And I do not want to go there. And the way to get there is sin and do it repeatedly and not repent and keep on doing it, keep on yielding to temptation. That's the way for us to get into hell. You know, we in America probably need more preachers who are willing to talk a little bit about hell. Don't get me started on that. Secondly, there's an old saying, and a lot of them I don't like, but there's one that's true, and it says, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. Let me just tell you, there's a lot of truth in that statement. 
It, it is not enough for us to just say no, like the little video said. We can't just say, no, 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 no. We've got to say something besides that. Fill your mind with good thoughts. Fill your mind with Bible stories, pleasant memories, inspiring motivation, biblical principles. I'm, I'm currently writing down Roland's Absolute Truths of Life. And one day, I'm going to put that in book form. It won't be under that title, but you look for it. Down in the road in the future, I'm going to write a book. All these statements I've been making for the last 37 years of ministry, I'm going to put them in a book. And one of those, one of those books is biblical, one of those principles is biblical principles are always true no matter what situation you're in. If you can force yourself to think on biblical principles, man. Thirdly, bitterness, anger, negativity, these attitudes produce a toxic mental atmosphere which can lead us to make terrible decisions. We get to choose what we think. Now listen to me as I close. We get to choose what we think about. If you think about the bad things that have happened to you, if you think about your present situation as impossible and difficult and intractable and insurmountable, if you think about your future with fear and dread and stress and anxiety, you are not going to have a moment's peace. You're not going to have happiness. You're not going to walk in joy. You're going to be like 98% of the other people in America, frustrated, stressed out, struggling, which is why calming drugs, drugs that calm us, Prozac, Number one, last time I checked, number one most prescribed drug in America. Drugs to help us calm ourselves and cope. Bitterness. The Bible says to get rid of the root of bitterness, which grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Our negativity does not just affect us. It affects all those around us. We've got to get rid of that. Don't develop a toxic mental atmosphere. Focus on the good. Focus on the things God has done in your life already. Focus on the blessings of God in your life. You woke up in America today. That's one of the greatest blessings you could ever hope to have. You get to go to church today. You're here in the house of God. There's no fear whatsoever of soldiers running in the doors and arresting all of us and cutting off our heads. We don't have any fear of that. That's a great blessing from God. Many people attend church, and every time they gather, there's a real chance they might not live through it. Strife at home never justifies wandering. Well, I'd have never paid any attention to her if it weren't for my wife. Oh, come on now. Are you Mr. Perfect? Well, I'd have never paid any attention to him if me and my husband were getting along. I'm sure y'all argue separately in separate rooms alone. We use conflict with our spouse to justify what our flesh wants to do anyway. I have noticed that a lot of third-party marital affairs start because there's trouble in the home. And it doesn't have to be big trouble, but just enough of a slow burn to justify somebody looking elsewhere for affirmation. Now listen, that's a coward. That's just cowardly. I'm being honest with you. That's cowardly. Be man enough, be woman enough to walk in your house, 
shut down the electronics, get a sitter for the kids, walk out to a place in the woods if you have to, sit down in front of your spouse, take out your machete emotionally, and hack through the Congo jungle of emotional trouble that's in your marriage and work it out. Have the courage to fight for your marriage, not physically, but emotionally. It's worth it to hash through it. It's worth it to talk it out. It's worth it to process through it. Don't you give up. Don't you give in. Don't you let the devil destroy your marriage and steal your joy. It's worth whatever it costs to hack your way through the junk and find your way to resolution in your marriage. One of my great axioms of life is that you never try to put a fire out with gasoline. What's going to happen? You and your spouse aren't getting along. You think, well, I think an extramarital affair might be just the thing we need. <laughs> I can assure you that's like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. It's not going to help. It's going to make matters worse. Listen, when we make decisions in our flesh... We almost always make the situation worse. I, 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 just, I, just, I just can't deal with this. I'm just going to go get drunk. Okay, when you get sober after you're drunk, it's going to still be there to deal with, and you will have probably done something stupid while you're drunk to make it worse. Not me. Not me. I'm, I'm always in control. Oh, shut your hole. You're not. I've heard that stuff all my life. When people wake up naked in the street, and go, oh, I'm, in, I'm in control. You're not in control. You're drunk. We deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. Now, here's the good news, and I want uh, Brad to come play. I didn't just pick him at random. <laughs> oh, Vicky, come play. No, no. She almost passed out. You're choking at Here's what I want you. This is. I, I know I've, I've steered this whole thing toward, toward, challenge, and toward, and toward obedience. But I want to leave you with this. It's a powerful thought about grace. Even though it's possible, probably few of us will overcome every temptation we have to face from now until the grave. Did you know somebody just deadlifted a thousand pounds? Set the new record. Some guy just successfully deadlifted a thousand pounds. Now that proves what? It's possible for a human being to deadlift a thousand pounds, right? But how many of us in here right now, this moment, could do that? Not me. My knee implant might go boom across the. Hit Thomas in the head, knock him out. But just because it's possible doesn't mean we can all do it every time. Even though it's possible, probably few of us will overcome every temptation we face from now to the grave. But that's what God's grace is all about. Don't beat yourself up if just this week you failed in some terrible way. And I preach this and you feel like, well, there's just no hope for me. I should have conquered that because it's possible for me to conquer every temptation and I failed. So now God's going to 
going to punt me out of glory and now I've got all this work to do to convince him. No. God's, there's a reason why the Bible says his mercies are new every morning. There's a reason why the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I'm not giving any of us a pass for sloppy living and sinful compromise. But I am telling you is that while trying your best to make the right decisions, even knowing that it's possible to overcome temptation every time, if you blow it, if you cave in, if you make a bad decision, if you, if you compromise, if you sin, don't leave this church house today thinking, well, that's it, it's over for me. No, it's not. God's grace is there for you and for me. Even if knowing we can't, we, we, we shouldn't fail and can overcome temptation, even knowing that, even the assurance of God, even with all this truth, if we mess up and if we sin, if we fall away, if we, if we make a mistake, if we do something stupid, God's grace is there. You know why? Because He's just that loving. He's just that merciful. He's just that understanding. He's just that patient with us. He's just that incredible as God. I want to tell you this as we close today. I want you to hear it. You might not be perfect. The good news is none of us are. I believe we can live pretty much a sinless life from the day we get saved until the day we die, but none of us do. I think it's potentially possible, but I think hardly anybody in history ever has. But I can tell you this. God's grace never leaves you. God's grace does not abandon us. And if we blow it, it doesn't necessitate that God gives us the left foot of fellowship and kicks us out of the kingdom. It doesn't. His mercies are yours today. His grace is yours today. His patience and love reaches out to all of us today. It's not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. That's what the Bible says. Let's all stand.